1: Burn the Boats is proud to support VoteVets, the nation's largest and most impactful progressive veterans organization. To learn more or to join their mission, go to VoteVets.org.
2: I have full faith and confidence in our military. Our military is apolitical. They serve the Constitution and the people of the United States of America. They don't serve at the whims of whoever is in charge in the White House.
1: I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. On Burn the Boats, I interview political leaders and other history makers
3: about choices they confront when failure is not an option. Today, I sit down with Patrick Murphy, former soldier, congressman, and acting secretary of the army. We talk about the role of the military in American democracy, about Patrick's leadership in getting don't ask, don't tell repealed. And about the challenge that service members face when their oaths to the Constitution conflict with orders from the President.
1: Patrick Murphy, welcome to the show. You're a former soldier, congressman, acting secretary of the Army under President Obama. Does that make you the Honorable? Can we just go with the Honorable throughout the uh, <laughs> the interview?
2: <laughs> Come on, Gary. Call me, call me Patrick.
1: Patrick, thanks for coming on. I am so thrilled to have you on the show at this particular time time, because I've been thinking a lot about civil-military relations and the the state of them, and you have occupied significant positions on both sides of that divide as a soldier, a Bronze Star winner for your service with the 82nd Airborne in Iraq, and as a acting secretary of the Army. How would you evaluate the state of that relationship today, three years into this administration?
2: Well, a couple of things, Ken. Uh, first, I just want to say thank you for your service, too, not just as a naval aviator and an officer, but also your commitment to political public service. Listen, I think the fact that we have the least amount of veterans serving right now in Congress is a symptom of folks that are in Washington who who are putting themselves or the political parties first. And I think we have to get back to our basics and people are going to put our country first. And so... I think that's some of the dismay that the American people are feeling, that disconnect with what's going on in Washington right now. Uh, I think part of the solution, frankly, is getting more veterans in political public service, but also more Americans saying, we're not going to take this anymore. We're going to stand up and do right by the United States of America.
1: Trump has gone to great lengths, though, to make a show, and I'm using that word intentionally, a show of his support for veterans, and not just vets, but active duty personnel. He puts them front and center at fundraisers, at political events. He uses them as props at campaign events. How do you think that's being received among
2: the rank and file? Well, you know, I'm trying, you know, since I left the Pentagon not to be overly political, but there is no doubt that starting from the RNC, the, the platform where he attacked a gold star father who was supporting his opponent, to the way he treated his chief of staff, General John Kelly, the way he treated his secretary of defense and General Mattis and how he discarded them. And then most recently, how he's treating FBI leaders, how he's treating Army Colonel Vindman because he spoke truth to power. It is no doubt a chilling effect on what's going on in Washington and it's reverberating throughout the ranks of our men and women. And I think we all hope and pray that the nonsense will stop.
1: Do you think that our military is ready, not to mention the the FBI and the other agencies whose members swear an oath to the Constitution? Are they ready for the inevitable constitutional crisis when facing a choice between upholding one's oath and carrying out the wishes of this president, which I would argue are approaching that constitutional line? I mean, you and I, and the millions of others who raised their right hands, did not swear to be loyal to this president. That's going to be tested.
2: Yeah. You know, I spent years teaching the next generation of military leaders at West Point. Actually, I taught constitutional and military law. And, you know, Ken, you and I are the same year group, 1996, becoming officers, you in the Navy, me in the Army. You know, those years at West Point teaching constitutional law, a constitution that Every one of our men and women in uniform, those who have sworn to protect America against all enemies, foreign and domestic, they understand that they take an oath and allegiance to our Constitution, a Constitution which is the blueprint of our country, a Constitution which is a living, breathing document, but a Constitution that says to them— They must follow the Constitution. They must follow the law. They don't take an oath to the Commander-in-Chief. They don't take an oath to Congress. There is a checks and balance. There is a co-equal branches of government, executive, legislative, judicial. They get that, but they also understand that in those defining moments, in those moments of crises like Colonel Vindman did, they will speak up and they will not follow something that is not right. And they will do what's necessary to put our country first. Do you think constitutional training should be a
1: requirement for those swearing that oath, for officers in particular who are charged with leading men and women now facing that impossible dilemma between upholding that oath and following potentially illegal orders? Do we prepare our service personnel well enough?
2: You know, I think there's always room for improvement. You know, you and I both did ROTC, where the majority of our officers are commissioned. I didn't have formal constitutional law training when I was an undergraduate, but to go on the Army, at least to go to law school and then to go teach at West Point, every cadet at West Point, all 4,000 cadets will receive constitutional military law, will walk through the law of war, will be walked through, unfortunately, Instances in our past when they had to stand up and do what was right, even if that meant disobeying an unlawful order. So whether it was the My Lai Massacre, whether it was the constitutional crisis under President Nixon's years, and some of the things that we're seeing right now, live, currently happening, you see that and actions speak louder words. And I think every trainee, every young man and woman that becomes either a sour or a soldier or a Marine or an airman, they know what's at stake and they know what right looks like. And I have full faith and confidence that in those defining moments, they will continue to do what's right for a nation.
1: I have utmost faith in their character and their courage. But I was just at Ohio State Law School giving a lecture about my piece in the Atlantic, taking this on, and a number uh, students pulled me aside afterwards. Students that had gone through ROTC, some of whom were in the Guard now, and said, we are not equipped. We don't have the background to be able to decide what is an unconstitutional order and what's not. You know, it was an academic point for most of their careers, certainly for my entire career. I didn't think about it much at all, but you invoked me lie. I mean, that When I was going through, my training was a faint echo, it's reached a crescendo now when you have a president who is literally celebrating war criminals, who is literally parading them at fundraisers after giving them a pardon, and it sends not just a confusing but a damaging signal to the men and women we are asking to carry the flag to represent us in conflict zones abroad.
2: Yeah, you know, the My Lai Massacre, let's just make sure it's clear. I mean, that happened in Vietnam, where over 350 unarmed people were killed by Americans. And it only stopped because there was a young lieutenant, William Cawley, who was a platoon leader. And it was one of those things where we learned from those mistakes. We are very introspective in the military. So we're ready to say no, because we kind of know and have a gut feeling, and we get trained every day what right looks like. But I will tell you, and then, by the way, as you know, every time you're promoted within the military, you're taking that oath again, that oath, that allegiance to our U.S. Constitution to stand up against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And you look at what's going on, and I think that's why there's a lot of discontent in America, and there's a lot of people who are losing faith in political public service. I think that's why you're seeing a record number of retirements from members of Congress. I think that's why you're seeing some folks who are leaving this administration, because they're just not happy and they know that we have to stand up as Americans and get involved in the process and be part of the solution. Do you
1: worry that that loss of faith in our institutions of government Has a risk of spilling over to the military, which, for a very long time, I would argue, we bounced back from the trauma of Vietnam, and for the better part of a generation, the military has been held in incredibly high esteem. But does the broad loss of faith in America's institutions threaten to affect America's faith in its military?
2: I have full faith and confidence in our military. Our military is apolitical. I know. The chairman of the of staff, Mark Milley, is adamant about keeping it that way, and I have full faith and confidence that they will continue the over two hundred-year history of our military and doing just that. They serve the Constitution and the people of the United States of America. They don't serve at the whims of whoever is in charge uh, in the White House. Can you give us some more reassurance that
1: behind the scenes, those charged with carrying out the mission of the united states military to support and defend the constitution against all enemies foreign and domestic are indeed standing up to the attempted politicization of their institutions of the army of the navy of the marine
2: corps is there pushback that we're not seeing the fact is this is that we see it bubbled up in the newspapers and in the media when these profiles encourage stand up and do what's right and i think the most recent example was colonel vindman and again I understand. He stood up. He reported. He testified to Congress. And I understand that you know when the Senate impeachment was over, he was unceremoniously escorted out of his position with a national security team, you know, out of the White House as if he was a criminal. And they went after his brother as well. And I, I know. Yeah. And it's disheartening, and it's a black mark on our nation's history. But Ken, I would say to you, and I am an optimist by nature. Anyone that jumps out of a perfectly fine airplane tends to be (laughs) an optimist that our parachutes can open up. But, Ken, I will tell you that it's always darkest before dawn. And a dawn is coming. And it's coming because there's this grassroots movement of Americans who are willing to stand up and do what's right. And not going to sit on the sidelines anymore.
1: You— referred to the attempted humiliation of Lieutenant Colonel Vindman as a black mark on our nation's history, I would submit that the military acquitted itself well. It is not a black mark on the institution of the military. Lieutenant Colonel Vindman answered that subpoena. He did his duty and I think brought great credit to himself and his service. Let's extend the question though to the community of Veterans that many Americans are looking to for inspiration, for guidance, for some hope. Do you think that there is a special burden that veterans carry in this time, as you put it, darkest before the dawn, for carrying
2: that torch and setting an example for their fellow Americans? No doubt. We need veterans to step up in political public service and business. I mean, Ken, your record is tremendous. One of the real leaders, you you know, you started, the mission continues, co-founded it. You start one of the largest veteran nonprofits in the whole country, national movement. That's still going on strong in every community, including our community here in Pennsylvania and Philadelphia. But I will tell you that, yes, when you look at political public service, when you look at the U.S. government, it is not looked upon with great honor and distinction by the American people. They don't have confidence in it but they do have confidence on the American warrior. They do have confidence in a warrior class, which is our active troops and our veterans. And I do think that veterans aren't willing to be, for the most part, they're not willing to be political pawns. They're going to stand up and do what's right. And not just in political public service, but I think, especially in our generation, I think you're seeing them get after it. I mean, veterans are more likely to be Little League coaches. They're more likely to be pastors in their churches. They're more likely to be small business owners and for those small businesses to be successful. And so I think all those things are positive, and that's why they have such great respect of the American people. But let's face it, they are less than 1% of America. The warrior class, our generation of sons and daughters, and we, we both got commissioned the same year in 1996. I remember when I was going to training at King's College, a small Catholic college in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. And I had classmates that'd be like, hey, Murphy, what are you, what are you G.I. Joe? And you know, I remember I was dating a girl, and her dad said to me, Patrick, why are you joining the Army? You're in a dean's list. You're a captain of a hockey team. Why would you do this? I said, sir, well, you know, my dad served, my uncle served. I, you know, I want to serve my country. And he's like, what happens if a war breaks out? I said, well, then I would go and serve. And that's what I did. That's what you did. I was on active duty. When 9-11 happened, I went to two combat deployments. I'm proud of that service. But we need more Americans to step up, not just in military public service, not just in political public service, but to be part of the solutions to move this country in a new direction and move it forward.
1: What does that mean systematically? I'm going to circle back to something you said about veterans volunteering in greater numbers than their civilian counterparts, voting at higher rates, being more likely to be engaged in their communities. Is that because of some selection bias in who the military takes in? Or does that shared service imbue the veteran with a sense of community and commitment to their fellow citizen that we could maybe scale up and provide that experience to more Americans.
2: I am a huge believer, huge, huge, huge believer that to move this country forward, we have to give young Americans an opportunity to serve. And I absolutely believe in a national call for service. And again, this isn't military service, Ken, as you know. This is say, you know, whether it is the military or it could be Teach for America or it could be the Peace Corps, but it is getting people to serve their nation at a time when they want to serve, at a time when they just want to know what opportunities are out there. And you have to make it a systematic approach. This is a whole of nation approach, not just a whole of government, a whole nation approach, so that if you do serve, it should be a common, like, hey, Ken, where did you serve? Hey, I served in the Navy. Or hey, I served in the Teach for America. Hey, I served in the Peace Corps. Like, it just has to be in our DNA. And if it's in our DNA, like it is for the American warrior, when you leave, you have that love of country stamped on your heart. That's why you show up at the PTA meeting. That's why you show up, even though you had a long day at work. You go above and beyond because you know it takes leadership to step up and to show up across the Fabric our community.
1: I was listening to this fantastic interview with Barbara Ehrenreich on the way in who talked about our society having lost its rituals of shared experience, shared service, shared sacrifice. And... My reaction was to agree with the generalization, but to reflect on the fact that in the military, I was not lacking for any of those things. And if we could somehow give young people that experience, it would affect the way they think about everything. Because honestly, for me, the greatest thing I got out of my time in uniform, and and I would imagine the same holds for you, was... It's not really learning how to lead or even for me learning how to fly. It was being thrust into a situation, in my case, with 23 other Americans on my EP three aircraft and being forced to come together around a mission. That brought us together in a way that nothing else could.
2: No doubt, no doubt. And I said when I was in the middle of Baghdad in two thousand three, as part of the invasion force, and you know, I had this what's called a bolt team with the 82nd Airborne Division. Our guys and gals, they didn't care what race you were, what religion you were, if you believe in God or not believe in God, or if you're a Democrat or Republican, you had to get the job done. But when we came home, we had to make sure that we were there for each other as well. But I will tell you, that's that call of service. That is that belief in each other in your fellow American, your fellow paratrooper, your fellow sailor that we need across America, that these young Americans know you have an opportunity to serve besides just the military, which is still an awesome opportunity to serve, but other opportunities to serve, whether here at home or abroad. Well, your
1: life is certainly a testament to that ethic of service made real from your your initial oath of office to your time in Congress, to your time as Under Secretary to your time as acting secretary of the Army. But I want to ask you about one piece of that in particular your leadership of the effort to repeal Don't Ask, Don't Tell. How does a kid from a Catholic college, a son of a cop and a former nun, find himself <laughs> at the vanguard of an effort to undo that manifest unjustness and give those tens of thousands of Americans the opportunity to serve their country? Why did that fall on your shoulders of all people?
2: Well, Ken, a couple of things. One Just like the Navy and the Army, we have that saying, keep it simple, stupid. And to me, you know, I spent years of my life teaching constitutional law, and I was there at West Point on active duty as a young Army captain. And I was there when 9 11 happened, and I remember stepping up and saying to the general counsel of the Department of Defense at the time, who was visiting West Point, and said, Hey, sir, is there a chance, you know, we would repeal? Donation Hotel, you know, is the administration going to support that? Because we've kicked out over 10,000 troops because of who they love. And he kind of snickered at me and said, why, Captain Murphy, you think we should? As if, like, you know, it was this outrageous question. And I said, yes, sir, absolutely. I said, we desegregated our, our military at a time when half the country was segregated, where we had colored water fountains and colored bathrooms and colored restaurants. And we did that because we said we all wear green. We all bleed red. Because we all knew that we had to get the job done. And we were in the middle, by the way, of the Korean War. And this is, you know, when we were sending troops into Afghanistan. And, you know, I knew I had volunteered right away and I knew I was leaving West Point to go fight. But I remember, you know, as a straight person who, as you mentioned, my mother was a Catholic nun. She was an Immaculate Heart of Mary nun. Her probably most proud moment was that I was in 1987, altar Boy of the Year at St. <laughs> Anthony's parish. I say those things, Ken, because, you know, we keep it simple we take note that a constitution, a constitution that says, what does America stand for? It stands for freedom. It stands for equality. And so do you believe in equality? Yes. Are you willing to fight for it? Yes. So as a young congressman, I volunteered. I I was in the Armed Services Committee, the member of Congress that had written the legislation to repeal it in the past. He was going over to take a position. He was Alan Talsher, Under Secretary of the Secretary of State. I knew there was a chance for someone like me to step up. And I went to then Speaker Pelosi. I said, ma'am, I know I'm a straight white guy, a Catholic with a young family, but, you know, I believe in equality. And I think as the first Iraq War veteran, you know, someone who serves in the Armed Services Committee and the Intelligence Committee, I'm best primed to lead this effort. And I'll tell you, ma'am, if you give me the mantle, I will make this happen. And she says, all right, Patrick, I'm going to give this to you. And we got it done in the House. And, and we pushed it like heck, and we got it done in the Senate. And it was the end of that congressional term. President Obama was the president, and he signed into law. It'll be 10 years ago this December when that was signed on law. You fast forward, Ken, that the military has been an agent of social change. When we repealed Don't Ask, Don't Tell after 13,000 men and women, fighter pilots, infantrymen, Arabic speakers were thrown out, not because of misconduct, because of who they loved. That statement, that testament to equality in our armed forces has been a game changer, has been a social agent of change, which ushered in marriage equality in America. Because Justice Kennedy talked about it in the Supreme Court decision. You know, we can't not have marriage equality when our troops, you know, are, are not treated when they go back home to places like Ohio or Pennsylvania. And that is a great moment in our nation's history that you and I were part of. But I will tell you, that march to justice cannot now just, you just can't sit in the sidelines when you see that there's 5,000 kids, frankly, brown kids, being locked up on our borders right now, over seven of which have died in our custody just because you know they come from Mexico or from Central America. That is a black marker nation's history. So again, we're seeing veterans step up, veterans like Connor Lamb, who ran for Congress and won in Pennsylvania, veterans like Chrissy Holand in Chester County, Pennsylvania. These are folks who I call friends, who I support, and that I'm still supporting. That is why I'm passionate about this. Well, your passion comes through unmistakably.
1: just want to add one thing to your observation about the repeal of don't ask, don't tell and the writing of that wrong, it not only was about justice, it was about combat effectiveness. I think our military is better for it, not just because it acted as an agent of social change, but because we were able to, to receive the talents and the patriotism of those thousands of people who wanted to serve their country. And we're all better at our jobs uh, because of that.
2: No doubt. You know, when I was you know, running the Army as Acting Secretary of the Army, and and our Chief of Staff was General Mark Milley. And we stood there, we testified in front of Senator McKean and the Senate Armed Services Committee. And we said, we want to open up all the occupational specialties, all the jobs in our Army to women. If they want to go to ranger school, let women go to ranger school. And oh, by the way... Most women can't get through ranger school. Most men can't get through can't ranger get school. not get
1: through ranger school. I couldn't get through ranger school. <laughs> right.
2: So let's, like, stop kidding ourselves, right? If they want to try and go for it, don't lower the standards to have one standard. And guess what? They are kicking ass and are taking names. And you have people like Lisa Jaster out there just smoking it. That's why in places like West Point, we had a soccer camp for high school students. You had a young girl by the name of Katie Pasca. Katie Pasca is a girl from a row house in Northeast Philadelphia. I grew up at St. Anselm's Parish with her mom. Her dad's a mailman. Her mom's a Coast Guard veteran. And she has her daughter up at West Point at a soccer camp. And you know what? She says, Mom, I want to go to West Point, and I want to be an Army Ranger or an Army Green Beret. You know what? She can now. You know why? Because we had a Commander-in-Chief in Barack Obama who was saying, hey, we believe in equality. Let's keep it simple. Let them give them a chance. You had leaders like General Mark Milley, who is now Chairman Mark Milley, who was willing to put his reputation on line, and guys like, and gals like myself, and people like Mar Sullivan, who was, you know, Assistant Secretary in the Pentagon, you know, who was working for the Department of Navy. We had leaders like that standing up and doing what was right. And we did it because we didn't need permission from Congress. We did it because we could do it via executive order. And unfortunately, some of those executive orders have been, you know, have been rolled back under. President Trump, where he doesn't allow now transgender service members serving. And I think that, unfortunately, hurts our combat effectiveness because there's a lot of transgender Americans who could do a great, great service and want to do a great service, but unfortunately now, they're not given that chance to serve. Yeah.
1: Well, Murph, thank you for your service, for your leadership. We end every show with the same question. What is the bravest decision you've ever been
2: a part of? Oh, man. I think, frankly, probably the most recent was uh, – I'm a big proponent of Bobby Kennedy. Bobby Kennedy once said, moral courage is rare. It's more rare than physical courage. And I remember being in Congress, you know, I had won my first race by 0.6%. I was representing Bucks County, Pennsylvania, and it's only the third Democrat in 200 years. And and I was all in. You know, when the Obamacare bill came up, I co sponsored and I supported it. And, you know, there was a lot of protests. There was hundreds of folks that would protest my office and show up at my events. In fact, I showed up at a protest once. They were outside my office on a weekend and we didn't have office hours, but I knew they were showing up. And I showed up by myself with a copy of the healthcare bill that I had read and I had it tabbed. And I went to the one veterinarian and I said, sir, you have the first question. And he read this thing about, well, it says on page 236 that you're going to give free healthcare to all legal immigrants. And I said, sir, that's not true, but Let's not just take my word for it. Let's go to page 336. And we we went there, and and I walked them through it. And and I said, sir, what we're saying in that email, whoever told you that, you go back to them, you let them know they were a liar. We can have arguments on policy. We don't need to lie about it. But probably the bravest thing was the moral courage to stand And I was in that Amtrak crash a few years ago. I was coming back from Washington. And unfortunately, uh, eight people were killed uh, that night. Uh, I was outside of Philadelphia, and our train derailed I stayed back even though I was not unconscious and, and bloodied up and I stayed back and was able to punch out the emergency window and help people go to safety and I stayed back to provide care. That was probably in most recent, beside my time in Iraq and, and Bosnia, probably the most bravest thing. But you know, I think it's brave just to be a parent, just to be, you know, a good American and stand up and, and say, no, it's not right. When people are like, how can you not vote for Trump? I think that's brave, and that's what we need more Americans to stand up and do what's right when they know things are not going in the right direction, which are clearly not going right now when you look at political public service and what's going on in Washington, D.C.
1: Well, thank you for sharing. Thank you for the inspiration for the example that you set. Murph, let's do this again soon. Absolutely. Thank you, brother.
3: Thanks again to Patrick for joining me. You can find him on Twitter at, at @PatrickMurphyPA. Today, Patrick and I talked about the potential constitutional crisis the military might face under President Trump. So we wanted to hear from you about a time when you were asked to do something you knew was wrong.
4: Hi, I'm Isabel Robertson, producer of Burn the Boats. I'm here to read a couple of stories you all submitted about times you did something you knew was wrong in order to stand up for something right. On Facebook, Leanne wrote about a time when she stood up to a sergeant. The reserve first sergeant told her to have her marines go clear the mortar pits recently abandoned by the Iraqi army. She wrote in her Facebook comment, Flabbergasted by his ignorance, I flat out refused and told him we'd be waiting until EOD had given the all clear. That was a common sense decision, really, but as a staff sergeant, it was delicate to refuse and educate the man on his error. He was not the most receptive guy. Over on Twitter, Carol told us about a time she stood up to her boss. She wrote, once a boss asked me to conceal an important fact to an insurance company. I told him that he would have to write that memo because my integrity in this business was all important and I wasn't going to lie. Also on Twitter, Elena said that she reported a parent for child abuse to social services when she was a teacher, even though the principal and superintendent called her at home to express their anger. Thank you so much, Leanne, Carol, and Elena for sharing your stories and for standing up for what's right. You can join in our conversation yourself by finding Ken Harbaugh on Facebook or following him on Twitter at at team underscore Harbaugh.
3: Next time on Burn the Boats, I'm talking to Joe Sandberg, entrepreneur and investor working to end poverty in California and across the country. Especially in this time of economic turmoil, we want to hear your thoughts on achieving financial security for all. If you could change the economic system in America, what would you do? Thanks to our partner, VoteVets. Their mission is to give a voice to veterans on matters of national
1: security, veterans care, and issues that affect the lives of those who have served. VoteVets is backed by more than 700,000 veterans, family members, and their supporters. To learn more, go to votevets.org. Burn the Boats is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers, Joan Andrews and Michael D'Aloya. Our producer is Isabel Robertson. Audio engineer is Sean Rule Hoffman. Our theme music is Climbing to Greatness by Cody Martin. If you enjoyed today's episode of Burn the Boats, please rate and review us on iTunes. It really helps other listeners find the show. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions.
0: Faith in the news media has been challenged, making it even harder to get stories told. The Friday Reporter podcast was created to help audiences better understand the media, by hosting journalists who will answer the questions to which we need answers. Join me every Friday to hear more. This podcast was produced
4: with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.